Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Hey all, this is Josh. Not only is today's episode a baby boomer episode, but it is the episode where I record the intro because Dan and Jeff have officially had their second baby, second son, and the name has not been announced yet. So if you were looking to pitch other philosophers from throughout the ages, I think your window is closing. Although I do think the name has already been decided, but we're really happy for them. Uh, Chris and I are trying to lighten Dan's load as much as possible this week, given the week that they've had. Um, But today's episode is one of the Baby Boomer episodes, and we've done one of these before, but it's with Dan Gross, and he gets into his story. And in talking with Dan about these episodes, there's just like a soft spot, I think, because there's so much material around deconstruction, and it's rarely, if hardly ever, centering baby boomers, people of different generations who are also going through this process, who are asking these types of questions. So it's a great episode. Um, This is one of those where we release half of it on the main feed and half of it on the Patreon. So if you'd like to join the Patreon and become a patron, you can at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. That's always available to you. That's in the show notes. But the first half is good and the second half is great too. So if you'd like to listen to both, you can join. If not, Uh, We're happy to see you here, and we'll see you next week. Um, Here is Dan's conversation with Dan Gross. 
Dan Gross, thanks for being here for uh, the second. It's been a year and a half now, probably since the first one, but the second entry in I don't know how occasional this mini series will be, but I'm I'm very interested in this topic. Uh, baby boomer deconstruction, faith change, whatever you want to call it. There are some some real generational differences between uh, what what I and my friends as millennials have gone through, what younger Gen Z folks go through, uh, a little bit older Gen Xers, and then people our parents' age, uh, like yourself, boomers. So I'm I'm really grateful to have you here to talk with me about that. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. A little background for people who don't remember that episode. It is from, as I said, about a year and a half ago. I had Joe Bishop on. He uh, was a therapist for for many, many years, and I think he just retired, but had a lot to say about people of your guys' cohort and the different ways that, in his case, and as in mine, you know, evangelical Protestantism, leaving that group as a member of essentially the Jesus generation and having had a lot more time in those spaces than, for instance, your children uh, the people my age had in those spaces. And, and I just have continued to be fascinated by this topic. So what I understand from a conversation I had with you, we, we've hung out twice now at successive theology beer camps with, with trip is that you and your wife went through what we might call deconstruction process about 15 years ago. So in the, in the mid uh, mid late aughts, but since then you have been a part of groups of friends and circles and and done some some lay work within the church more broadly where you've seen a bunch more uh, of people of your generation go through a similar thing. So I'm interested in both your experience and kind of what you've picked up on uh, through those others. Yeah, I'm going to correct you a little bit. I think my wife's been deconstructing for 35 years. <laughs> okay. 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 But you, it took you 20 years to, to catch up with her or what? Yeah, I, I'm the slow one. You know, as happens to a lot of victims of sexual abuse in her 30s, all that came to the surface mm-hmm. and she yeah. dealt with some really severe depression while we were trying to homeschool. That was, that was challenging. Wow. <laughs> you don't say. I, I think six months of homeschool at one point was the kids sitting in bed with her while she read to them because that's what she could handle. Yeah. But I think one of the main things that happened because of the medication she was on, we had to meet with a psychiatrist. I think it was quarterly. And he was an amazing guy. He was, it was an old Jewish guy and he did more for her in 15 minutes than all the therapy she went through with, with all the regular uh, MFTs. Yeah. And the biggest thing he said was, I'm not here to change your religion. I'm not here to tell you you shouldn't believe in your religion, but I think what you believe is harmful to you. And Mm. you need to look at it and see, maybe you have some wrong ideas about who God is. Never heard that language before. It's pretty, it's pretty direct, especially for a psychiatrist. That's, although it's always helpful to remember that in those days, even as much as 10, 15 years ago, as little as 10, 15 years ago, as I understand it, psychiatrists did a lot more therapy uh, than they tend to do these days. And that's a lot of that's because of shortages of labor and, you know, more people requiring medical medication, stuff like that. But regardless, psychiatrist or, or talk therapist, psychotherapist, that's some pretty direct language. Uh, And, you know, sometimes that's warranted and sounds like in this case, it very much was. I just gotten a picture of 
uh, building with a faulty foundation and mm -hmm. all the walls were crooked and the windows didn't fit and and everything had to be torn down, including the foundation to build something that was correct. And that yeah. gave me peace to watch what she was going through because it it was tough having small kids and 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 dealing with all that. I'm sure. So she was in and out of therapy. She's doing tremendously better. I mean, it was really good, all the stuff she worked through. But through that, we started to come to the realization just how different her and I are. I grew up in a home. My parents were Christians. I never doubted that they loved me. It was really unconditional. It yeah. wasn't perfect. My mom's severely codependent. You know, they're both children of alcoholics and all the baggage that comes with that. But it was a good home overall. And fairly early in our marriage, my wife and I realized I grew up never doubting their love. And she grew up never feeling loved. Mm. So we were just opposite ends of the spectrum on that. Can you speak a little bit to how that, you know, obviously to the extent that you feel comfortable speaking for her, how did that affect your kind of baseline default view of God? Because there's some research around that sort of how we view our parents, you know, you can use attachment language there, secure or insecure attachment, and that can have effects on, on what people assume or believe about God. Do, do you, do you have a sense of kind of what those baselines were? Especially coming out of a conservative fundamental church, the penal substitution whole doctrine of, of atonement didn't hurt me because mm. I had a healthy a more, I shouldn't say healthy, a more healthy view of God's love because it was reflected in my parents. One other thing that kind of brought this home to us, our daughter, we adopted her much later in life. She was raised in a very fundamental uh, homeschooling, quiverful kind of family. Wow. Yep. And we ended up adopting her and, and she was going through young life and she came home one weekend for some training she had been living with us probably 10 years by this time. And she said, this was the first time I heard somebody talk about God's love. And I understood it because you guys have loved me that way. Wow. So it's possible to get out of that, but I've seen it in my daughter and my wife. It's really hard to walk away from that when you don't have that attachment as a child, trying to recreate that with a, a God we can't see, feel, or touch. Right. It sounds like Kathy kind of had to go through a deconstruction process because of essentially worse life experiences growing up than you had. Yeah. Maybe if you could contrast that, like once you did go through deconstruction, you personally, I would imagine it was a bit more like my experience where for the most part, it's not an issue of whether you are accepted by God and whether the present and future are precarious, but more a question of like, what's the best way to understand God? And there's some pain in that. And we'll talk about the sources of pain, but maybe at that sort of core relationship with whatever the divine is or our picture of God, that seems to have not been kind of the, the nub of it for you. Is that right? Yeah, not at all. Early on, one of the books, it was a set of three books I read from Brad Jerzak, More Christ-like God, More Christ-like Way, More Christ-like Book. And there's a quote in there that was kind of my, has been my anchor through all of this, because I felt secure in my relationship with God when I started this, and I wondered what was going to happen to that. And so the quote is, 
if Jesus is the truth, then the unrelenting search for the truth will always end up at the feet of Jesus. So on my journal, that's the top line in my journal. And I just, I hold on to that going, okay, I'm actually looking for the truth. I'm getting way out there. I'm reading some things that are just, you know, I joked about being in the same room with John Dominic Crossan. Yeah. I would have burst into flames 30 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the liberal uh, Jesus seminar scholar who was at theology beer camp with us uh, in October uh, totally. And I and I had those associations with him, too, growing up evangelical. I remember – I think I've said this before, but I remember being at Barnes & Noble like as a college kid and thinking like, oh, what a shame. Anybody who just walks over to this Christianity section, how are they going to know that these books are leading them astray, but these books are going to be helpful for them? Uh, and, and really, you know, Crossan and Marcus Borg, you know, the, they were kind of the top two names of like the scariest writers on there. If it was today, if I was a college student today, it'd be Bart Ehrman probably. Um, but, you know, there, there's always somebody like that. And and I, I like I get and like what you're saying about, you know, all truth is God's truth, essentially. Like if God's true and then like what do we have to be afraid of looking for the truth? However, I think there's something really interesting in what you were saying there, and I haven't heard a lot of people express this, so I kind of want to, kind of want to zoom in on it for a second. This idea of because you had had a loving and supportive and basically positive experience with God in a more conservative setting, there's a worry that you will lose that, that you will lose that warmth and that and that relationship, and I think that. That goes kind of underreported or maybe under identified as some of the stakes for people who go through faith change, especially people who go through it more in the way that you did, which was more gradual, not the result of like a shock to the system, which is what your wife, Kathy, had to go through. Right. So a lot of us end up in this space because of a shock to the system. Something happens to us someone in our church community acts, you know, acts evilly and we are sort of burst awake from a dream and then putting the pieces together. But for people that that's not their experience, who are not sort of thrust into that change, I think that makes a lot of sense of like, Hey, so many things about this have worked very well for me, including a loving relationship with the creator, the creator of the universe is this really something that I want to kind of throw up in the air and like gamble with essentially? What it came down to me was giving up certainty. Yeah. That has probably been the scariest thing. Yeah. Brian McLaren calls this, you know, the stages of faith. The first stage of faith is certainty and moving out of that. Yeah. It's scary. Cause there's a, there's a lot of, see, when you feel secure in your certainty, <laughs> you're giving that security up and it's scary. And there's, there's been times, there's been weeks, I don't know, months maybe, where it's like, am I okay? Am I really mm-hmm. doing this right? Yeah. But what's really helped that a lot is uh, learning about meditative and contemplative prayer. That has been really important for both of us. Yeah. And Kathy's way better at it than I am. Well, first, I'll just say, you've mentioned Brad Jersak and Brian McLaren. Josh will put links in the show notes to my episodes with each of them because they've both been on the podcast, if, if people want to hear those. With Brad, we talk about uh, universal reconciliation or universal salvation. 
And with Brian McLaren, I think we talked about a lot of things. We kind of jumped around and I can't, I can't put like one topic on it, but both great conversations. Describe how that works. The, like, I know how it works for me, contemplative practice and, and how that kind of ha- calms my anxieties about the, the changes in my faith structure and, and that natural tumult there. But can you say what, what role it plays for you? For me, it's, I do it for, it's 15 minutes, you know, that I just sit in God's presence quietly mm-hmm. and try to stay focused. And I've worked really hard and I'm up to about three seconds without losing my train of thought. <laughs> Monkey mind, as the Zen Buddhists call it. Yeah. There was one book I listened to about meditative prayer. It was from a, not from a religious perspective. And she talked to a guy that had practiced it for 30 years. And he said his record was eight seconds. So wow. that made me feel better. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's the idea of being able to pull yourself back and focus. God's done things through that. Some of it conscious. I think a lot of it's unconscious. And it's more people telling me, wow, you're really different. You're a lot more relaxed. You know, you're not so uptight. It's it's mystical in a way. I can't keep her prayer journal and say, I prayed for this on Tuesday and God answered it on Friday. That doesn't work anymore. Right. <laughs> So it's more just letting myself go into that mystical space and just allowing, you know, just being in God's presence. And that's enough. It doesn't have to be more than that. What is a continuity and what's the discontinuity between that, you know, because you described it for you pre-deconstruction as it was easy for you to be in God's presence. And now you sit contemplatively in God's presence for 15 minutes. What's similar? What's dissimilar about what you experienced before and then what you're experiencing now? I no longer have a shopping list. I really have seen myself move away from a transactional relationship. As much as I understood being loved just for who I am, I still had transactional habits. If I do my Bible study every day, then God would, that will make my prayers more effective. You know, mm. that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's getting rid of that, knowing that moving into uh, a different understanding of who God is and what God can and cannot do. Stuff with uh, Tom Ward has been really big on that with yeah. uh, God Can't yeah. and uh, The Death of Omnipotence, both really good books. Yeah. So, your wife, being a survivor of sexual abuse, obviously different set of experiences. Psychiatrist comes in and says, hey, I think some of the stuff you believe is actually harming you. You're there supporting her, but that's not your story. What I'm wondering is, what's the first belief that Kathy identified as harmful that, that also registered to you? as either harmful or at least wrong and that you kind of kind of had to start thinking through even if it was a slow kind of a slow burn as you said yeah i think one of the things that she's been very gracious about is when i come back to her and say look at this great thing i learned she went yeah i learned that 15 years ago and you told me i was a heretic (laughs) (laughs) we're both avid readers so we read a lot He's a um, Catholic priest, and I'm blanking on his name right now, uh, Henry Nolan. 
and yeah, Henri Nouwen. Yeah, I yeah. think that's how you pronounce his name. I don't know that for sure. He was really big on her having a more healthy view of God, mm-hmm. but it was really hard for me to accept because she's reading this Catholic guy. You know, yeah. What had you been taught about Catholics up to that point? They were going to burn in hell with everybody else that wasn't like me. Yeah, <laughs> being around Catholics was that I had to grow in that. I know that now you're in the Ventura, you know, Southern California kind of, I guess that's the border between Southern California and the central coast of California. Yeah. Was all this taking place kind of in that same geographical area? Were you kind of down there? Uh-huh. Okay. It sounds like Kathy had to start changing her thinking and her, the way she related to God and her faith earlier uh, because of her life experiences. But around 15 years ago, as I understand it, like you guys actually had to leave a church and kind of go through the more the more nuts and bolts of changing and, and doing something different. Is that right, timeline-wise? The church we got married in was really big on planning churches. I think it, they're up to 400 churches they've planted. Wow. And so we went to a church plant 10 miles north. This is down in the South Bay, down by L.A. So we did a church plant right next to LAX. And then from that, we moved to now Ventura County and did a church plant, and it went horribly bad, and all of it was blamed on Kathy. So we ended up at a vineyard in Oxnard, and we were there for almost 25 years, and that's where we raised our kids and went through all that. My business was really struggling at the time. The church was struggling because the pastor was my best friend, and I thought there were things that we could have done to to fix the problems in the church, but I was never listened to. And we finally just gave up and left. And I think what was really hard about that was friendships that I thought I had developed over 25 years were gone in a day. Still, nobody's ever contacted us. That's a tough one. How do you think about that? Like, what language would you use to describe the mechanism there? Is it is it that, well, it was real friendship but it was contingent upon group membership or was it not real friendship because it was focused on like, is it not the kind of thing true friends would do? You know, like how do you, how do you kind of narrate that back now? I've come to the conclusion they were never true friendships. It was because we were part of the tribe. And once we're no longer part of the tribe, then there's no reason to talk with us. Maybe we're dangerous. But we still are super servants. We're really heavily involved. And I did everything in that church except Sunday school because I don't work with kids well. But um, <laughs> anything else from construction to running sound, um, preaching, I teaching small groups. We oversaw all the small. I mean, we did everything. Yeah. And so when we left, I guess there was a meeting to talk about who's talked to Dan and Kathy. What did they say? What, you know, they were worried that we had poisoned the the pond or something. I don't know. It was weird. There was a damage control meeting essentially about yeah. you were leaving. Yeah. We left clean. We, uh, early on in my Christianity, I heard a pastor say, you know, if you're going to leave, just don't spit on us on the way out. And I always <laughs> took that to heart going, you know, that's the, that's the honorable thing to do. If they want to come and ask questions, that's fine, but don't stir a bunch of crap up. My sense is that that dangerousness plays a big role because kind of like we talked about earlier, the stakes 
can feel extremely high for people, you know, depending on who, depending on the individual, kind of their entire sense of the structure of their lives, reality, uh, you know, obviously their eternal destination, depending on how seriously they take that, you know, all that can be threatened. Like that nagging question of what if all this is wrong has really tremendous psychological power, I think. And, you know, as you've kind of already alluded to, oftentimes that is the fault of those who constructed the building, who laid the foundation. And that is usually not the individual person herself, right? You you inherit some of that through family, certainly through a pastor or teachers in a religious community. That's one way that I understand how people can cut other people off so quickly, how they can shun them, you know, in kind of higher control religious environments, right? Shunning is like, it's a defense mechanism, basically. Uh, it's like a, it's like an immune response for the organism of the group, you know, does that, is that how you see it as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I wonder if that's maybe a good place to sort of ask about, a boomer specific or just maybe an older, uh, a later age in life specific kind of lens. You know, if, if that happens when you're 30 and you're in a church and some of your friends start leaving that church versus when you're 60, do you, do you see there being a difference in that, that immune reaction, that defense mechanism? Is there, are, are the stakes higher merely by having spent additional decades potentially in this world? Uh, I think on a couple different levels. One is we invested a quarter of a century of our life in this church. Yeah. Investment we, time. Yeah. And we end up with zero. Yeah. You know, you, that, that was, that was the hardest part on a different level. It's easier being older because we didn't have to deal with pulling our kids out and them leaving all their friends. Hmm. I hear about people going through that and thinking, I'm glad. I wish I had helped my kids learn this stuff earlier, but at the same time, doing it without young kids makes a big difference because you're not responsible for somebody else's life and well-being. Yeah. So that that's made it easier in that way, being older. I have gone back and apologized to my kids because they wanted to leave the church before I did, and I didn't let them. What, why did they want to leave? Because their friends weren't there. They There were other churches in the area where we had other homeschooling families that they had connected with. Yeah. And they never really, about the time from junior high on, they didn't really connect with um, the people in our church. But I'm super loyal to a fault, and I should have let them go. But, you know, we have to stay loyal. We have to stay here, you know. Mm. One of the more than a few times I've gone back to my kids and apologized for being an idiot. Well, that one, well, and that would make the no calls, no follow-ups even more painful, right? That you had that loyalty and you even paid some, a cost with your children because you thought that that was the right thing to do. Yeah. In terms of other, you know, I'm, I'm curious because this is another angle here as the older children, right? If for generally speaking, at least on average, uh, for the average boomer who goes through a faith change, you know, they got adult kids, Right. And if they had kids, they're probably now adults <laughs> uh, unless they, you know, unless the, the baby boomer male 
you know, work something out with a younger, <laughs> younger woman. <laughs> There's a certain biological clock, right? So that part doesn't sound specifically like it was about harmful theology or harmful settings or anything. That was more about them being able to connect socially and, and kind of have a, a more robust social group around church. Have you also had conversations about kind of the more the more typical deconstruction topics, the the harmful teachings and, and stuff like that? So my oldest son, he started school really late and then was like on a rocket train. Mm-hmm. So he went from not reading to graduating college in eleven years. So it it was a it was a roller coaster as a parent. He went yeah. to a four year college when he was he wasn't even 16 when he transferred to a, a four-year college 100 wow. miles away. So as a parent, that's really scary. Sure. So he went through his own deconstruction in school being faced with uh, philosophy. Yeah. And we tried to help him. You know, we actually ended up going through uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, not, um, not C.S. Lewis. The guy from Labrie. Uh, Francis Schaefer, how then then shall we live? Yeah, we even did a small group on Francis Schaefer just to help my son when he was back to work through philosophy, because that was the best we had at the time. Sure, yeah. So he kind of followed the same path that Frankie Schaefer did. Uh, He left left the Protestant beliefs, and he went over to uh, Eastern Orthodox. He'll probably never hear this, so I can say it. Uh, He's become an ortho bro. If you heard ortho that. bro, uh, <laughs> it's like yeah. a theo bro, but they're orthodox. Yeah, these are these are. I'll I'll tell you what I think you mean, and then you can correct me. So there is, you know, the theo bro kind of moniker uh, is used to, in various ways to describe uh, males, usually younger males, uh, maybe like at least under fifty, uh, probably who are culturally conservative and theologically conservative. And a lot of uh, mansplaining that goes on, uh, usually a complementarian view of men and women and their roles and the ways that they were created by God. And in the Orthodox space, you know, so like in a in a Calvinist Protestant space, you'll have a lot of emphasis on generally neo-Calvinist theology, the sort of John Piper, formerly Mark Driscoll type stuff, uh, double predestination absolute God sovereignty stuff. And you have these men uh, explaining (laughs) this theology to everybody else with quite a bit of condescension. And then the the ortho bro is different because the Orthodox church, it doesn't have like the biblical inerrancy stuff. They've got um, the binding teachings of the unified church up through the 12th century and all this tradition. But as I've experienced it, directly with some Orthodox monks and other folks, like there is like not dissimilar to what's going on in Russia culturally, a real emphasis on masculinity, a real tendency to be very critical of, of queer sexualities of any kind, uh, the sort of feminization quote unquote of the West and of culture. Uh, how did I do? Yeah, I think that sums it up uh, the way it was explained to me. Cause I was, trying to understand how I can read Brad Jerzak, who's thoroughly East, Eastern Orthodox, but full of grace and love and open to, you know, yeah. 
pluralistic, you know, the whole thing of affirming and my son. <laughs> I didn't, I couldn't. And the way it was explained to me is they've left the Protestant belief system, went to Eastern Orthodox and brought their fundamentalism with them. The church that my son attended, the Eastern Orthodox church he attended here when he was living in Orange County, was founded by a bunch of Campus Crusade staff that moved to Eastern Orthodox yeah. like 20 years ago. Yeah. And that's really common. Like a lot of people at um, Christian colleges will make that turn. It's almost like, you know, 5% of your class. If you if you start up at Biola or Westmont or Wheaton or whatever, like you can count on 5% of your cohort eventually becoming Orthodox, you know? Yeah. And it's not a huge number. Um, and, and some people do it not like, to be clear, not for th- ortho bro reasons. I was just at one of my, one of my very best friends. I was just at his chrismation, which is like confirmation, uh, a year ago. And he absolutely did not do it <laughs> for ortho bro reasons. He is, he is, uh, very drawn to, uh, the beauty of the theology, the liturgy. He's had, tremendous relationships with some Orthodox priests. Uh, and he, and he made the jump crossed. What do they call it? Crossing the, there's like some river between East oh, and West. I don't I know. Heard that, between. That's... Yeah. I don't know. There's some sort of, maybe some river that went down, down the middle of uh, Constantinople now Istanbul. Um, I forget what it's called, but you know, he, he did that. And, and not for these reasons, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to hear that that's sort of the current, state with your son and i i hope that like is is there still relationship there uh between the two of you yeah but if we bring it up if we start to talk theology it's pretty much monologue you have the inverse of what the average listener of this show has when they get together with their parents <laughs> yeah now my my daughter you know she had a lot of trauma a lot of church trauma and sexual abuse trauma from her bio family she's left church she hasn't left god but she's left church it's it's just too triggering for her yeah and she still has a relationship with god but her whole friendship thing is totally outside of church Mm. it's just she has no connection at all 